0: Wonderful people, yeah, you feeling wonderful? I want to say a hello to all of the eight thirties who backslid a little bit now in this ten o'clock service. It's cool, it's cool um no I really do mean you're wonderful um I preached at another church last Sunday. they're just not wonderful, you know no, just kidding, you can't say that no they were they were awesome. It was actually streams church, um, which is the church plant of here. awesome people, but I really do I mean I just I'm am amazed by you guys. Um, we went to three services here, and somehow you guys literally just kind of divided yourselves in thirds. I don't know how you did it or what kind of meeting you had when we weren't invited to, but it was it was awesome. And now, like our children's ministry workers are getting to spend a little bit more uh, in depth time with the kids instead of just crowd control, and um, there's just kind of that ease around here. So. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, we, I've seen a lot of people step up and start helping out uh, on our Sunday mornings, um, serving in different ways, pitching in. It's just so such a joy to be a pastor with you guys, walking along um, with you guys. It really is. And I hear all these good things happening in the life groups that we started. We're like, hey, let's do life groups. And like almost 400 of you are like, yeah, let's do life groups. Um, like you weren't doing anything with your lives at all before that. <laughs> Oh, we've got all this time on our hands. Let's just fit. No, I know that's not true, but it, it's the sacrifice you're making and it's um, bearing good fruit. We're getting to hear stories all the time. So thank you for being awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for being so awesome. It makes my job just so much easier. And then when I go and meet with other pastors, I just make fun of them all the time because of all the problems they have and all of that. No, I don't. I don't do that. Um, So we've been trying to unpack this concept of church around a table. Um, We've been spending a lot of time talking about Jesus, which is a good thing. We've been spending a lot of time talking about Jesus' last supper and what really was going on in that moment. We're were trying to really um, get into us um, as Jesus' followers 2,000 years later, what Jesus was trying to get into his disciples in that last culmination meal with them, those last few hours he had with them. Um, we've been taking it really seriously and diving in. And we're going to continue to do that a little bit today, but, um, but I'm, today's going to be a little different. I'm really trying to, to just make sure we don't get all this stuff in our heads, but I'm, I'm, we're going to have some pauses in our, in our, in our um, time together. We're, I'm really hoping that stuff will get distilled down into our hearts a little more today. Um, so this might be a little bit slower, if you fall asleep, that's okay, we'll just go straight to your heart, we don't need your brain anyways, um, but like, that's really what I'm trying to do, because we've, we've, we've kind of shared some con- concepts in this regard, we've shared some inspiring stories, um, but I, I, really want to, what I've been praying is that God would help you understand how this applies to you in your daily routine. Um. There's the phrase, what would Jesus do, which is a good phrase, but one of my friends, I love that he says it's totally insufficient um, and actually a really heavy burden if we just leave the question like that. He says, the true question is, what would Jesus do if he were me and he lived in the context that I live in today? And I just think that's a, uh, it's, a it's a little longer kind of thought process, but, it, but it's, it's more valid because you are you. And you are facing the things you face with. And you have the job you have and the calendar you have. And, and so I, I, want, I want us to figure out what it could mean for you. And basically at the end of this thing, I'm going to pray that Jesus would just show us what the next step is. Because we're following him. And he's leading us from being you know, one thing to something much greater. And it's just one step at a time. So we're just going to try and do a little bit of that in our, in our um, message today. But we have this concept. Um, this is kind of a life lesson for me, but basically uh, Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus comes on the scene, and, and he sits in the, the synagogue with all the other um, believers at that time, and, and, he, and he at one point is called to the front, and he's given a passage of Scripture, and it's from Isaiah, and he reads it, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, Proclaim freedom for the prisoners, proclaim recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, and then he sits down and he says, today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. He's basically saying, from now on, you can judge everything in my life based on this criteria. This is what the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do. Proclaim good news to the poor. Set the old priest press free to heal people, to help people, and to let them know how much God loves them, that his favor rests on them. So that's what he said. And then a little later on, um, John the Baptist, who was kind of, you know, he was Jesus' cousin, but he was trying to figure out, Jesus, are you really the whole thing, or are you, like, just part of it? And Jesus said to him, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Try that again. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. Remember how awesome I said you were just a second ago? <laughs> this is not quite uh, The good news is proclaimed to the poor, there we go. I'm expecting you guys too, you know. I know you th- don't think I can see you, but I see you up there. Um, but good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. So Jesus basically said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor and to heal people. And then later on, John the Baptist is saying, Jesus is really, you? and he said, same test. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor and to, and to help and heal people. And and if you're seeing these things happen, you know that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then as we get to that last supper, Jesus is basically saying to his disciples, in John chapter 13, he washes their feet. John chapter 14, 15, 16 is kind of the discussion they had in that time recorded for us. And Jesus is saying, the same Spirit that is on me is going to be on you. Therefore, the same measurements are going to be applied to you. The spirit that is upon Jesus caused Jesus to walk in the way that he did. And the same spirit now rests on us thanks to the resurrection. And so the spirit of the Lord is upon you and me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor and to help and heal people. That's the transfer that was taking place in that moment. And we've talked about that leading up to this. But as we've gone through, we've talked a lot about the life of Jesus showing up. We've talked about a lot of giving body and blood and washing people. But this one phrase has just constantly like jumped out at me and said, don't forget me. And then I'll go on to the next one, don't forget me. Because always when we talk about Jesus, we have to remember that one of the main things that he was about was proclaiming good news to the poor. Proclaiming good news to the poor. So if you want to follow Jesus then one of the things that should show up in your life on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, however you measure your life, proclaiming good news to the poor. That's what it means to have church around the table, to proclaim good news to the poor. So we're going to unpack that a little bit because obviously good news is kind of a funny word, and poor can be defined in a lot of different ways. So first of all, let's define the word poor. Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46 Um, in the message translation, says says this. When he finally arrives, and all his angels, are in blazing and beauty, and all his angels with him, the Son of Man, Jesus, will take his place on his glorious throne. Then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter you who are blessed by my Father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why: I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was homeless, you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, "Master, what are you talking about?" When did we ever see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king, the Lord, as Alan Meyer talked about last week, the Lord of all, will say, I'm telling you a solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. So in this definition... The poor would be those who are overlooked and ignored. And I'm, I married a lady 15 years ago, and Brittany, she's my wife, she's still my wife, and uh, I live with her still today after 15 years, which I guess is like progress and, and really something to celebrate um, in our world. But I, I live with her, and you know, I, I kind of link my life with her, and um, Prior to marrying her, I, I was not married to her for 27 years, and 17 of those years, I really, really, really loved myself, and I thought a lot about myself, and I considered myself more highly than I ought. <laughs> I thought about, I was just absorbed with myself. I, re, I mean, I really was. I just thought I was great, and and if, I, if everything was going my way, then everyone should be happy. And if they weren't, then I didn't even know because I didn't think about them at all. Um, it's true. Just very arrogant, prideful, selfish, self-absorbed. No doubt about it. Um, and then at 17, Jesus started messing with my life. And he started to say he wanted to do a work in my life. And I thought, cool, you know, you want to care about me? Well, I care about me. You care about me. This is going to be great. I got God now thinking about me and what I want and how important it is. And, and, but it didn't happen that way. Um, he actually saved me. When I talk about the salvation that Jesus brought into my life, yes, it's true. He saved me f- forevermore. Um, yes, it's true. He saved me from, not, from living a life not knowing my maker. Knowing my father. He saved me from so many things that I didn't know about. But in that moment, he saved me from my selfishness and pride. And and he started to all of a sudden make me care about other people. And it was a radical thing for me. And I really did. I started to care more about other people and the stuff they were going through than even the stuff I was going through. And I don't get it right all the time, but that really was important because then I got married. And now I was married to someone who also cared about herself and not me. And we kind of had this tug of war. Well, all of a sudden, now I had to care about her all the time. (laughs) She had feelings about everything all the time. (laughs) I didn't have much space in my life for all of her feelings about what she was going through because I had all my feelings about what I was going through. So that was a big trip. and, and, And in some ways, I would say she saved me again. God was like, okay, David it's not working, (laughs) just me and you, I'm going to bring Brittany, because you're going to need, and Brittany is strong and powerful, and she won't put up with crap, so um, I remember her just sticking up to it, and me having to adjust, and it's been an awesome thing, but all of that is to say, that Brittany is someone who cares for the overlooked and ignored, she has taught me this, in such amazing ways, and it's funny, because sometimes it comes out where, she doesn't really care that much for people who aren't overlooked and ignored. <laughs> and, and if you're someone that's not overlooked and ignored, sometimes you'll be like, I don't know how she feels about me. Well, that's a good, just keep it there. Just keep it there. You know, no, she doesn't hate you or anything. But she just, her life is just so driven towards the overlooked and the ignored. She loves them. She cares for them. I've always described my wife, she's like the real Peter Pan. She's just looking for lost boys so she can teach them how to fly. And it is absolutely true. I've seen it over and over and over again. And I just feel like God has constantly been trying to teach me these lessons, teach me this. And what I'm sharing with you today is just, it's just from from the deepest parts of me. And I'm wrestling with this all the time because I'm so prone against it, but I'm so in love with what Jesus is trying to teach me. And Jesus has been teaching me for years, and Jesus is a great teacher, and I'm going to try and jam it all in, and I'm not even that great. So, like, just bear with me on this. But I'm going to try and give us some pictures and try and distill this for how it can be expressed in your life. But I married Brittany, and um, we ended up building this house together Uh, about 30 months ago is when we moved in. So we were building it before then, by the way. Um, And I remember her praying, which is just common for her, that this house would not just be used for us. It would also be used um, for others. And I didn't really know what she was talking about and didn't care that much about it at that time. I just thought, whatever, as long as we get to live there, it'll be better than living in this master bedroom with all five of us. Um, but now, just, just last week, I woke up to lots of barking dogs, because we have a lot of them, um, and I was thinking about our situation, and I, was, and I remembered her prayer, because right now, we live in this house with um, our three daughters, which is a lot of her fault, some of my fault, but a lot of her fault. Um, so there's, there's all of us living in the house now. We also live with two foster boys, which was a dream and a prayer of hers all her life. Um, and it became one for me too. And then, and then we also live with her mom. And, uh, her mom's cool, so there's no problem there. And then we also live with her sister. And she has a husband. And they have five kids. And, okay. You know. And, uh, <laughs> And then they have two dogs, the mom has two dogs, and we have two dogs, which is not that abnormal, but that's six dogs when you bring them all together. And then for some reason, and the, this guy, is, is, he's, a, he's working with the kids upstairs. So you, I could understand if you don't feel comfortable with this. But this, this kid, he's 19 years old. He lived in California. And he, for some reason, wanted to move in with us. I've been looking. He's been with us for a few months now. I'm trying to find something wrong with his brain. But he did he wanted to move in with us. So now he lives in this little like garage side room thing at the kibbutz that we call home. And uh and he's he's loving it. And he's he's loving it. And we have a chicken. We used to have eight, but we have coyotes that come around sometimes. So we're down to one. It's not it's not funny. Um and then and then all of that is to say that we also, we had a goat at one point. Because, just to describe my wife even more, somewhere in Phoenix, there was a goat that was born to a a mama goat, and the mama goat rejected the baby goat, which is sad, right? And the person who was was there to witness that, for some reason, her mind thought, I should call Brittany. (laughs) I still have no idea how that happened, but all I know is, Is this goat was overlooked and ignored, literally. And this person said, I'm going to call Brittany. And I came home one time. There's a little baby pygmy goat. And for the next two weeks, every two hours, the goat needed to be fed. So all through the night, here you go, baby goat. (laughs) So God is just laughing. At how self-centered, self-absorbed, and prideful I am. And here I am, years later, in the, at 3 a.m., just feeding a, a baby goat a bottle inside my house. <laughs> and loving every minute of it. I mean, not true. Loving when I'm in the right mind. Every minute of it. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that this is what the Lord's calling us to do. Please, you hear me? Do not do this. <laughs> do not do this. But God has led me step by step on a journey to, to where now, I mean, I, I can check off some of these. I mean, it's, it's, it's somehow I'm learning, and, and I have to rely on the grace of the Lord, and, and, and I mean, we have to take breaks from time to time, and we're sitting with our daughters last Sunday night, and... And we're just talking to them, and they're saying, hey, you know, whenever this works out this way, can we just take a break for a little bit? You know, because I was telling them, in 30 months of living in this house, 26 months, we've had somebody living with us. That's only four months of building this house and getting to enjoy it just ourselves. And then I told my wife to stop praying. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. <clears throat> Thought it, but didn't say it. So anyways, caring for the overlooked and ignored, even baby goats sometimes. Isaiah 58, this is the Old Testament perspective, but it's kind of saying the same thing. This is the kind of fast day I'm after. So the people were fasting with no food and thinking God was so pleased with them because they weren't eating. And God was saying, look, if you want to know what really is important to me, it's not that you don't eat food, it's this to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of the exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed, to cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way the glory of God will secure your passage. Then you'll pray and God will answer. You'll call out for help and say, "And I'll say, here I am. So in this passage, care for the poor is care for the exploited, the oppressed, the hungry, the homeless, the cold, the in debt, and also those maybe in your own household that are overlooked and ignored or neglected, whether you're willing to admit it or not. And so what I want to do right now is I'm, we're just going to be quiet for about 40 seconds. And I just want to see if God might be able to bring to mind someone in your life that could be described as overlooked, neglected, or any of these other things. And for you to take a mental note of what God might be speaking to you. Maybe someone's already come to mind. That's fine. Just begin to pray for that person. And to begin to ask God, what. What can I do? In all these words, Lord, I pray that we really would hear from you. Amen. So now that we've described who the poor might be, um, I want to talk about how do we present good news to those people. Is there some way we can learn what might be a first step or a simple step or start the creative process between the Spirit of God and you and maybe your wife or maybe your roommates or whatever? How can we begin to walk this out? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24 is going to be the beginning of kind of diving into this. And we're going to take some more distilling moments as we go through this as well. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. This is good stuff right here. You should read this every day or at least every time you're sad. For we are not coming, as Moses did, to a physical mountain with its burning fire, thick clouds of darkness and gloom, and with a raging whirlwind. We are not those who are being warned by the jarring blast of trumpet and the thundering voice, the fearful voice that they beg to be silenced. So this is the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, hearkening back to the library of Scripture. We learn that Moses was out of this mountain called Sinai one time, and God came near to the people the people of Israel, and he came as this big fiery cloud that set on the mountain, and he spoke in this powerful, thunderous voice out of the cloud, and spoke to the people. And all the people were like, this is freaky. And God was saying, come up to me, come up here. And the people were like, no. No. Moses, why don't you go up there? Because it's scary up there. And then Moses went up there, and we learn in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses had this deep, intimate, powerful moment with God. For 40 days, he was with God and experiencing the love and compassion and kindness of God in the midst of all of the power and wonder that was taking place. So he's saying, we're not this. We're, we need to be afraid and all of this type of stuff. What we have come to is this. We've already come near to God in a totally different realm. The Zion realm. For we have entered the city of the living God, which is the new Jerusalem in heaven. We have joined the festal gathering of myriads of angels in their joyous celebration. This is what heaven's like. God is not super concerned about the election cycle that's happening. Heaven is not going, oh, yay, yay, yay. I mean, I know we are. But right now in heaven, the holiness of God is being celebrated because nothing on earth could ever change that. And as members of the church of the firstborn, Jesus, all our names have been legally registered as citizens of heaven. And we have come before God who judges all, who lives among the spirits of the righteousness, and who have been made perfect in his eyes. We're being made perfect in his eyes. Yes. And then this. And we have come to Jesus. Not to that scary mountain. But we've come to Jesus who established a new covenant with his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, blood that continues to speak from heaven, a message of forgiveness. A much better message than Abel's blood that cried out from the earth, justice. So how do we preach good news to the poor? We're able to come to them and speak out a message of forgiveness. Forgiveness instead of justice. Contrasting that Mount Sinai mountain with all that power, we have the babe of Bethlehem that was born into this world, soft and kind, and then walked among us not with a heaviness and a full power though, but the power was not to condemn, the power was not to, to, to provoke, the power was not to hurt or to punish the power was to heal and to forgive. And Isaiah it speaks of Jesus as, as a person with who a smoldering wick he would never put out and a bruised reed he would never break. He came with a softness and a lightness and a kindness to the poor, whether they were poor in their relationship with God, poor financially, poor physically, poor in their righteousness whatever they were poor and he would come around them with kindness and a message of forgiveness. And it wasn't a forgiveness that forsook justice. It was a forgiveness that was born out of him laying down his life to produce justice. And what did he in that moment where he took on the sins of all humanity, the most disgusting, horrific, murderous, rape sins, he took them on his whole body and out of that came a message of Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Preaching good news to the poor is coming around the poor and they already know that they've failed. They already are wallowing in their own shame and guilt. They don't need us to point it out. They need us to come and show them a path of forgiveness. And in a There's these two books that have just really taught me a lot along these lines. One is called Tattoos on the Heart, which is cool, but it's a Jesuit priest, and if you want to check it out later, the story is amazing, the writing is beautiful, but in it, he sums up what he's talking about, and he says, here is what we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry, rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. And I would just add one little phrase, and then we should lend our own shoulder to carry the burden for a while. Because as we go to approach the poor, which we know Jesus wants us to do, the Spirit of God is upon us to that end, we approach the poor. We shouldn't look at the poor and see them in their sinfulness, see them in their poverty. See the bad decisions they made, the way that they're carrying themselves, the way that they're speaking out against. We have to come to them and not judge them. God's the judge. But we come to them and we provide forgiveness. We come to them and we stand with them in their poverty. And instead of saying, wow, look at all that heaviness all over you and you're not carrying it right, you should carry it like that, we just say, hey, you want me to Put a little of that on my shoulder for a little while, and let's walk together. This is what it means to preach good news to the poor. Um, there's this phrase that I've been chewing on: empathy must be stronger than condescension. <laughs> and I, I am a master of condescension. I mean, I am. I'm awesome at it. I always have been. And uh, I have to fight it all the time. I'm so good at it now when someone's like, hey, man, I just, I'm like, I know, I'm being condescending. I'm sorry. Let me work on that. I I can just see it. Anytime someone says there's something, "Eh," they don't even have to know what it is. I can tell them, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's what it was. (laughs) You're right. And it's something the Lord is constantly having to work on in my life. It's something that I basically have a limp that I've had to learn how to limp with and make sure I don't live into that. And the opposite of condescension is empathy. And empathy is foreign to me. Empathy in the sense of being able to put yourself in another person's shoes to feel what they feel from their point of view. Just last night, one of my kids was having a real pathetic moment. And I was just like, I don't want to feel what you're feeling because you're crying and moaning and groaning and whining. I want you to feel what I'm feeling. (laughs) But that wasn't true because I was actually starting to get stressed because I was like, i got to preach tomorrow and i got to get my message together and you're over here moaning and groaning. And I just felt like the Lord was saying, go there. I was like, ah! And I did a horrible job of it, (laughs) but I tried. (laughs) I just sat on the bed and said, all right. Tell me what's going on. You don't care. It's like. (laughs) Already? I haven't even started. I want to hear what's going on. (laughs) It's crazy. Here's a few more things just to kind of finish up our time. This comes from a different book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Mm, That's pretty good. And in this book, this um, former lesbian, now follower of Christ, in Rosaria Butterfield is describing some of her experiences with something she calls radically ordinary hospitality. This is good stuff. This is, these are meaty, so you've got to buck up. Everybody sit up straighter a little bit if you need to stretch a little bit. Got some long phrases here, but this is the distilling process. Living out radically Christian hospitality... Yep, means knowing that your relationship with others must be as strong as your words. The balance cannot tip here. Having strong words and a weak relationship with your neighbor is violent. It captures the violent carelessness of our social media-infused age. That is not how neighbors talk with each other. That is not how image-bearers of the same God relate to one another. Radically ordinary hospitality values the time it takes to invest in relationships Build bridges, repent of sins of the past to reconcile. Bridge building and remaking friendships cannot be rushed. Just get better. Stop feeling what you're feeling. No, but taking the time. Here's another one. As she's describing the first moment she encountered what she would call radically ordinary Christian hospitality. I breathed hard and hoisted myself out of my truck, nursing a tender hamstring from my morning run. I waded through the unusually thick July humidity to the front door of these Christians, and I knocked. The threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Hallelujah, right? Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals we had together or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if there was no door. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. Way to go, Smiths. Way to go, Smiths. Way to go, Smiths. And the last one. Radically ordinary hospitality describes those who see strangers as family and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know that all, that they are alike, meth addicts and sex trade workers. They take their own sins seriously, especially the sins of, yeah, 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 selfishness and pride. There are other sins. Why did she have to say those ones? They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. They practice radically ordinary hospitality. Those who practice do not see their homes as their own, but as God's gift for the furtherance of God's kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. And one last thing from Acts chapter 28 as we close. This is the apostle Paul Paul lived for two years in his rented house. He welcomed everyone who came to visit. He urgently presented all matters of the kingdom of God. He explained everything about Jesus. His door was always open. And again, I'm not telling you to do something specific here. I'm just saying we got to begin to understand what this means to live out radically ordinary hospitality to live out the love of Christ in this world, to proclaim good news to the poor. Let's pray. Jesus, I do pray in this moment that you would continue to distill some of this. Not only would you bring to mind the people that you have given to us, that you are putting on our radar, that you are assigning to us, just like you assign people to Jesus. But Lord, I pray that you would also just stir in us some creativity of how we could begin to be hospitable, be empathetic, be compassionate, not just concerned, but compassionate. And you'd help us know that it's going to take time. There's no quick, easy way to do this. I wrote this during the Music time, for service. just want to share it in case it applies to some of you. Because not only are we called to do this, but the beauty of this is Jesus has done this for us. He left glory to come and enter into our pathetic state and to feel our pain. The blood of Abel and all the others, cut off by the knife of sin or burned by the fires of injustice, cries out because the guilty are left unpunished and wrongs are not made right. But in Christ crucified, forgiveness and justice happen. All the wrongs are made right by the forgiveness and healing released by Jesus' sacrificial love. You might think today that no one cares about you or loves you or whatever ever sacrifice for you, but the scars in Jesus' hands and feet speak a different word. There will come a day when you and I will see those scars. The Bible teaches we will see Jesus as a lamb who has been slain. But you can feel his love today. And forgiveness and healing can start right now. Jesus, please come close to those who don't know you. Lord, please, for those who are willing to admit that they are poor in their relationship with you, they are poor in righteousness, they were poor in so many ways, I pray that right now they would cry out to you and you would answer with the full weight of your love. And salvation would come. And they would become new creations robed in your righteousness, and they would really know what forgiveness is. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing one last song, just kind of letting the love of God wash over us once again. Uh, We're going to have some people up front here that would love to pray for you. If you need some healing, if you need healing in your body or you need wisdom for a decision, or if you're someone that's saying, hey, I'm poor in my relationship with Jesus and I want to get rich. They would love to pray for you in that regard as well. So come on forward, be bold, and let's all sing as we finish this service.